Chapter Eighteen of the Romance of Modern Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Invention by Archibald Williams. Chapter Eighteen C. Expresses. In the year 1836, the Sirius a paddle-wheeled vessel, crossed the Atlantic from Cork Harbor to New York in nineteen days. Contrast with the first steam passage from the Old World to the New, a return journey of the Deutschland, a North German liner, which in 1900 averaged over 27 miles an hour between Sandy Hook and Plymouth, accomplishing the whole distance in the record time of five days, seven hours, thirty-eight minutes. This growth of speed is even more remarkable than might appear from the mere comparison of figures. A body moving through water is so retarded by the inertia and friction of the fluid that to quicken its pace a force quite out of proportion to the increase of velocity must be exerted. The proportion cannot be reduced to an exact formula, but under certain conditions the speed and the power required advance in the ratio of their cubes, that is, to double a given rate of progress eight times the drive power is needed to treble it, twenty-seven times. The mechanism of our fast modern vessels is in every way as superior to that which moved the Sirius, as the beautifully adjusted safety cycle is to the clumsy bone-shaker which passed for a wonder among our grandfathers. A great improvement has also taken place in the art of building ships on lines calculated to offer least resistance to the water, and at the same time afford a good carrying capacity. The big liner, with its knife-edged bow and tapering hull, is, by its shape alone, eloquent of the high speed which has earned it the title of the Ocean Greyhound. And as for the fastest craft of all, torpedo-destroyers, their designers seem to have kept in mind Euclid's definition of a line, length without breadth. But whatever its shape, boat or ship may not shake itself free of nature's laws. Her restraining hand lies heavy upon it. A single man paddles his weight-carrying dinghy along easily at four miles an hour. Eight men in the pink of condition, after arduous training, cannot urge their light, slender racing shell more than twelve miles in the same time. To understand how mail boats and destroyers attain, despite the enormous resistance of water, velocities that would shame many a train service, we have only to visit the stokeholds and engine rooms of our sea expresses and note the many devices of marine engineers by which fuel is converted into speed. We enter the stokehold through airlocks, closing one door before we can open the other and find ourselves among sweating, grimy men, stripped to the waist. As though life itself depended upon it, they shovel coal into the rapacious maws of the furnaces, glowing with a dazzling glare under the forced draft sent down into the hold by the fans whirling overhead. The ignited furnace gases on their way to the outer air surrender a portion of their heat to the water from which they are separated by a skin of steel. Two kinds of marine boiler are used, the fire tube and the water tube. In fire-tube boilers, the fire passes inside the tubes and the water outside. In water-tube boilers, the reverse is the case, the crown and sides of the furnace being composed of sheaths of small parallel pipes through which water circulates. The latter type, as generating steam very quickly, and being able to bear very high pressures, is most often found in war vessels of all kinds. The quality sought in boiler construction is that the heating surface should be very large in proportion to the quantity of water to be heated. Special coal, anthracite, or Welsh, is used in the Navy on account of its great heating power and freedom from smoke, 
Experiments have also been made with crude petroleum, or liquid fuel, which can be more quickly put on board than coal, requires the services of fewer stokers, and may be stored in odd corners unavailable as coal bunkers. From the boiler, the steam passes to the engine room, whither we will follow it. We are now in a bewildering maze of clanking, whirling machinery. Our nose is offended by the reek of oil, our ears deafened by the uproar of the moving metal, our eyes wearied by the efforts to follow the motions of the cranks and rods. On either side of us is ranged a series of three or perhaps even four cylinders of increasing size. The smallest, known as the high-pressure cylinder, receives steam direct from the boiler. It takes in through a slide valve a supply for a stroke. Its piston is driven from end to end. The piston rod flies through the cylinder end and transmits a rotary motion to a crank by means of a connecting rod. The half-expanded steam is then ejected, not into the air, as would happen on a locomotive, but into the next cylinder, which has a larger piston to compensate the reduction in pressure. Number two served, the steam does duty a third time in number three, and perhaps yet a fourth time before it reaches the condensers, where its sudden conversion into water by cold produces a vacuum suction in the last cylinder of the series. The secret of a marine engine's strength and economy lies then in its treatment of the steam, which, like clothes in a numerous family, is not thought to have served its purpose till it has been used over and over again. Reciprocating, i.e. cylinder, engines, though brought to a high pitch of efficiency, have grave disadvantages. The greatest among them is the annoyance caused by their intense vibrations to all persons in the vessel. A revolving body that is not exactly balanced runs unequally, and transmits a tremor to anything with which it might be in contact. Turn a cycle upside down and revolve a drive wheel rapidly by means of the pedal. The whole machine soon begins to tremble violently, and dance up and down on the saddle springs, because one part of the wheel is heavier than the rest, the mere weight of the air valve being sufficient to disturb the balance. Now consider what happens in the engine room of high-powered vessels. On destroyers the screws make four hundred revolutions a minute. That is to say, all the momentum of the pistons, cranks, rods, and valves, weighing tons, has to be arrested thirteen or fourteen times each second. However well the moving parts may be balanced, the vibration is felt from stem to stern of the vessel. Even on luxuriously appointed liners, with engines running at a far slower speed, the throbbing of the screw, i.e. engines, is only too noticeable and productive of discomfort. We shall be told, perhaps, that vibration is a necessary consequence of speed. This is true enough of all vehicles, such as railway trains, motor cars, cycles, which are shaken by the irregularities of the unyielding surface over which they run, but does not apply universally to ships and boats. A sail or oar-powered craft may be entirely free from vibration, whatever its speed, as the motions arising from water are usually slow and deliberate. In fact, water in its calmer moods is an ideal medium to travel on, and the trouble begins only with the introduction of steam as the motive force. But even steam may be robbed of its power to annoy us. The steam turbine has arrived. It works a screw propeller as smoothly as a dynamo, and at a speed that no cylinder engine could maintain for a minute without shaking itself to pieces. The steam turbine is most closely connected with the name of the Honorable Charles Parsons, son of Lord Rossi, the famous astronomer. He was the first to show, in his speedy little turbina, the possibilities of the turbine when applied to steam navigation. The results have been such as to attract the attention of the whole shipbuilding world. The principle of the turbine is seen in the ordinary windmill. To an axle revolving in a stationary bearing are attached vanes which oppose a current of air, water, or steam, at an angle to its course, and by it are moved sideways through a circular path. Mr. Parsons' turbine has of course been specially adapted for the action of steam. 
It consists of a cylindrical airtight chest, inside which rotates a drum, fitted round its circumference with rows of curved veins. The chest itself has fixed immovably to its inner side a corresponding number of vein rings, alternating with those on the drum, and so arranged as to deflect the steam on to the latter at the most efficient angle. The diameter of the chest and drum is not constant, but increases towards the exhaust end, in order to give the expanding and weakening steam a larger leverage as it proceeds. The steam entering the chest from the boiler at a pressure of some hundreds of pounds to the square inch strikes the first set of veins on the drum, passes them and meets the first set of chest veins, is turned from its course onto the second set of drum veins, and so on to the other end of the chest. Its power arises entirely from its expansive velocity, which, rather than turn a number of sharp corners, will, if possible, compel the obstruction to move out of its way. If that obstruction be from any cause difficult to stir, the steam must pass round it until its passage overcomes the inertia. Consequently, the turbine differs from the cylinder engine in this respect, that steam can pass through and be wasted without doing any work at all, whereas, unless the gear of a cylinder moves, and power is exerted, all steamways are closed, and there is no waste. In practice, therefore, it is found that a turbine is most efficient when running at high speed. The first steam turbines were used to drive dynamos. In 1884, Mr. Parsons made a turbine in which 15 wheels of increasing size moved at the astonishing rate of 300 revolutions per second, and developed 10 horsepower. In 1888 followed a 120 horsepower turbine, and in 1892 one of 2,000 horsepower, provided with a condenser to produce suction. So successful were these steam fans for electrical work, pumping water, and ventilating mines, that Mr. Parsons determined to test them as a means of propelling ships. A small vessel 100 feet long and 9 feet in beam was fitted with three turbines, high, medium, and low pressure, of a total of 2,000 horsepower, a proportion of motive force to tonnage, hitherto not approached. Yet when tried over the test course, the turbina, as the boat was fitly named, ran in a most disappointing fashion. The screws revolved too fast, producing what is known as cavitation, or the scooping out of the water by the screws, so that they moved in a partial vacuum and utilized only a fraction of their force, from lack of anything to bite on. This defect was remedied by employing screws of coarser pitch and larger blade area, three of which were attached to each of the three propeller shafts. On a second trial, the turbina attained thirty-two and three-quarters knots over the measured mile, and later the astonishing speed of forty miles an hour, or double that of the fast channel packets. At the Spithead Review in 1897, one of the most interesting sights was the little nimble turbina rushing up and down the rows of majestic warships at a rate of an express train. After this success, Mr. Parsons erected works at Walsend-on-Tyne for the special manufacturer of turbines. The Admiralty soon placed with him an order for a torpedo destroyer, the Viper, of 350 tons, which on its trial trip exceeded 41 miles an hour at an estimated horsepower, 11,000, equaling that of our largest battleships. A sister vessel, the Cobra, of like size, proved as speedy. Misfortune, however, overtook both destroyers. The Viper was wrecked August 3, 1901, on the coast of Alderney, during the autumn naval maneuvers, and the Cobra foundered in a severe storm on September 12th of the same year in the North Sea. This double disaster cast no reflections on the turbine engines, being attributed to fog in the one case and to structural weakness in the other. The Admiralty has since ordered another turbine destroyer, and before many years are past, we shall probably see all the great naval powers providing themselves with light craft to act as the eyes of the fleet, and travel at even higher speeds than those of the Viper and Cobra. The turbine has been applied to mercantile as well as warlike purposes. 
there is at the present time a turbine-propelled steamer, the King Edward, running in the Clyde on the Fairley-Campbellton route. This vessel, 250 foot long, 30 broad, 18 deep, contains three turbines. In each, the steam is expanded five-fold, so that by the time it passes into the condensers, it occupies 125 times its boiler volume. On the Viper, the steam entered the turbine through an air inlet eight inches in diameter, and left them by an outlet four feet square. In cylinder engines, 32-fold expansion is considered a high ratio. Hence the turbine extracts a great deal more power in proportion from its steam. As a turbine cannot be reversed, special turbines are attached to the two outside of the three propeller shafts to drive the vessel astern. The steamer attained twenty and a half knots over the Skelmory Mile in fair and calm weather, with 3,500 horsepower produced at the turbines. The King Edward is thus the fastest by two or three knots of all the Clyde steamers, as she is the most comfortable. We are assured that as far as the turbines are concerned, it is impossible, by placing the hand upon the steam chest, to tell whether the drum inside is revolving or not. Every marine engine is judged by its economy in the consumption of coal. Except in times of national peril, extra speed produced by an extravagant use of fuel would be severely avoided by all owners and captains of ships. At slow speeds the turbine develops less power than cylinders from the same amount of steam, but when working at high velocity it gives at least equal results. A careful record kept by the managers of the Caledonian Steamship Company compares the King Edward with the Duchess of Hamilton, a paddle steamer of equal tonnage used on the same route and built by the same firm. The record shows that though the paddle boat ran a fraction of a mile further for every ton of coal burnt in the furnaces, the King Edward averaged two knots an hour faster, a superiority of speed quite out of proportion to the slight excess of fuel. Were the Duchess driven at eighteen and a half knots instead of sixteen and a half, her coal bill would far exceed that of the turbine. As an outcome of these first trials, the Caledonian Company are launching a second turbine vessel. Three high-speed turbine yachts are also on the stocks, one of 700 tons, another of 1,500 tons, and a third of 170 tons. The last, the property of Colonel McCalmont, is designed for a speed of 24 knots. Mr. Parsons claims for his system the following advantages. Greatly increased speed, increased carrying power of coal, economy in coal consumption, increased facilities for navigating shallow waters, greater stability of vessels, reduced weight of machinery. The turbines of the King Edward weigh but one-half of cylinders required to give the same power. Cheapness of attending the machinery. Absence of vibration, lessening wear and tear of the ship's hull and assisting the accurate training of guns. Lowered center of gravity in the vessel, and consequent greater safety during times of war. The inventor has suggested a cruiser of 2,800 tons, engined up to 80,000 horsepower, to yield a speed of 44 knots, about 50 miles an hour. Figures such as these suggest that we may be on the eve of a revolution of ocean travel comparable to that made by the substitution of steam for wind power. Whether the steam turbine will make for increased speed all round, or for greater economy, remains to be seen. But we may be assured of a higher degree of comfort. We can easily believe that improvements will follow in this as in other mechanical contrivances, and that the turbine's efficiency has not yet reached a maximum. And, if our ocean expresses, naval and mercantile, do not attain the one-mile-a-minute standard, which is still regarded as credible to the fastest methods of land locomotion, we look forward to a time in the near future when much higher speeds will prevail, and the tedium of long voyages be greatly shortened. Already there is talk of a service which shall reduce the transatlantic journey to three and a half days. The means are at hand to make it a fact. Note. In the recently launched turbine-destroyer Velux, 
A novel feature is the introduction of ordinary reciprocating engines fitted into conjunction with the steam turbines. These engines are of triple compound type and are coupled direct to the main turbines. They take steam from the boilers direct and exhaust into the high-speed turbine. These reciprocating engines are for use at cruising speeds. When higher power is needed, the steam will be admitted to the turbines direct from the boilers, and the cylinders will be thrown out of gear. End of chapter 18 Recording by Todd